Welcome to Economic Frontiers. Today, our guest is Alex Tatelboim, who is a research fellow at the Institute for New Economic Thinking at Oxford University, and will be starting there as an associate professor uh, next fall. So the topic of our conversation today is going to be uh, market design, and specifically the design of matching systems. And in a bit of a departure from what we usually talk about, the topic will be not primarily digital nature, it will be refugees and how one might use economic thinking to help alleviate the refugee problem. So uh, welcome to the show, Alex. Thanks, Andre. Alex, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, and of course, uh, Seth Benzel is uh, my new co-host and he will be joining the podcast from now on. The pleasure is all mine. With that in mind, I think maybe a good place to start before we delve into the refugee problem is to explain what economics has to say about matching and maybe to give us an example from a, a more familiar setting, which would be the school choice setting. Thanks. Well, yeah, matching has been around um, as a discipline for about 50 years. It started with a beautiful work of David Gale and Lloyd Chaplin. And since then, we've been looking for ways of extending the theory and looking for applications in which we can uh, apply this theory. And one of the ways in which we routinely apply it all over the world, especially here in Boston, uh, but uh, all over the UK, is trying to match kids to public schools. So how would this work? Well, kids and parents, they have preferences over the sorts of schools that would be good for their kids. And the schools, they have priorities over the children. So the kids who have a sibling and live in the neighborhood, they would get the highest priority. And the kids who live in the neighborhood but don't have a sibling would have the second highest priority and so on. And so we look for ways to match uh, the kids to the schools. Now, what is a good match? So a good match, we might think, is one where no kid's priority is being violated. So if I really want to go to another school, it must be the case that I couldn't get into the school because my priority is too low. And there is no space to take me because if you bump somebody out, they would have had a higher priority than me. And that seems unfair, right? So we don't want, we don't want to have a matching that would be unfair in that way. We also don't want to have a matching which would be inefficient. So if two kids can swap a school and both prefer the schools that they swapped into, that also sounds a little silly. We want to prevent something like that. The other thing we want to do, we want to avoid giving parents an incentive to strategize and manipulate the preferences over the schools that they submit to the system. So, um, you know, 15 years ago, the system that was used in Boston allowed parents to do that. They'd allowed them to sort of strategize and misreport which schools they actually prefer. Because then the outcome you get, you don't really know what preferences it's based on. It's based on some preferences that, that maybe were not real. So you might say, okay, can we design a system like this that would be you know, fair and, and efficient and wouldn't give any incentives to manipulate? And the answer is no, uh, we, we can't. Uh, as ever in economics, there are trade-offs. And, uh, and so what we would have to pick is, is decide whether you know, fairness is more important than efficiency and so on. So in this specific example of school choice, uh, let's think about the deferred acceptance algorithm which is a commonly used uh, algorithm for this. Which of the three criteria is violated and why? So the, the only criterion that will be violated in general is efficiency. So it, the Gale Shapley algorithm uh, would give you an outcome which will be fair, uh, but it, uh, and it will give you no incentives to manipulate it if you're a parent. Um, it will give you the best possible outcome out of all the possible fair outcomes for the students, which is good, um, but 
there could be opportunities for two students to swap schools and make themselves better off. You can run another algorithm, which gets used in places like San Francisco and New Orleans, which is the top trading cycles algorithm. That allows you to find an efficient outcome, uh, and there is no way to manipulate that either for the parents, but uh, in general, it won't be fair. Can you give us an intuition for why a Pareto-efficient outcome is sometimes incompatible with a fair outcome? Um, they are just two completely different notions in a way, right? What we're really doing is we're allocating school seats, which are objects. We're worried about welfare as something that happens from the sides of the students. But, and that's the efficiency criterion. It's really a one-sided criterion in this case. Whereas the fairness criterion is really about an, a, a two-sided notion. It takes into account the priorities of the, um, of the schools as well, whereas efficiency doesn't, uh, doesn't matter. Of course, if you cared about welfare from both sides, in the way that we say, okay, doctors to hospitals, we care about welfare from both sides, then every stable outcome is going to be very efficient. So that trade-off disappears. Um, but then you might think, well, are the hospitals in that particular case also strategic agents? So really, it depends on how we set up the system. In the way the schools are set up, these priorities are really given. Schools do not strategize. Um, and so the strategic agents are the ones whose welfare we care about, and these are the students and the parents. I see. So other than, let's say, the school choice example, are there any uh, private sector cases where, where people might use these sorts of algorithms? You can allocate, you could use this to allocate any sort of objects you might want. You know, you might want to think about how you allocate, you know, slots for meetings and you might have particular preferences over different slots and people have some seniority in the, in the organization that gives them priority about what sort of slots get chosen and then you want to make sure that there's certain people present in a meeting and you might want to allocate these meeting slots according to a system like this. So as long as you have your two sides, some side that has preferences and one side is objects or maybe it also has preferences or priorities, you can use a mechanism like this. I see. But in the real world, we oftentimes don't observe such mechanisms. So for example, meetings are unfortunately not allocated according to any like centrally designed algorithm. Is there a, an intuition for why that's the case? These things are hard to build, right? So it takes, in order to create a market that allows you to apply the Gale-Shapley algorithm, you need to have all the inputs into the Gale-Shapley algorithm. So in the case of school choice, you need to make sure that all the schools are on board, that parents know what they're doing, they need to know which schools they want to choose, you need to be able to aggregate all of this information. And really the main thing is that this has to be, it's a contract between the parents and the schools. So if you get allocated to a school, this has to be credible, this has to really mean something. This is not something that you just run for fun to check what's going on and then allow the system to work in a decentralized way. So it's hard to set up institutions that will keep these things centralized. And it's hard to ensure that people really can participate in a way that is convenient for them and safe. So if I have to you know, rank 400 different time slots in order for you to be able to run your algorithm, well, I'm not going to want to do that. Actually, somebody asked me to do this recently. And I just... And all I have to do is say yes or no to this huge matrix of time slots. Well, I can't be bothered to do this, right? And so if, if participation is too difficult or too costly, people don't want to do it. That makes sense. So I guess just generalizing here, we might expect to see such mechanisms in cases where there's really a lot at stake for the 
participants and where every kind of extra bit of efficiency or fairness is really important, exactly as in the school choice case, but also in, I guess, the kidney uh, exchange cases or the national residency match. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, the more is at stake, the higher the incentives are to build systems that actually make sense. And remember, these systems, uh, these systems are built exactly because there is something that's left on the table. These, you know, the outcomes that we might observe in a market that would be decentralized would be very poor, and we would think, well, it doesn't have to be like this. Some degree of centralization allows us to improve um, uh, things in a dramatic way. So one setting in which uh, the quality of the match might be very important is the one where your recent work has focused, which is on the topic of refugees. Can you tell us how you got interested in that setting for the problem? Sure. So my um, original idea with my co-author, Will Jones, was um, to think about why is it that certain refugees end up in particular European countries. There is a, a convention in the EU that the first country you land in is the country in which you're supposed to apply for asylum. But what we discovered is that actually countries have very different ways of deciding on whether an asylum seeker should be a refugee. Even though we might think in Europe these conventions will be applied in very similar ways, actually they're not. And for particular kinds of refugees, you might be much more likely to gain asylum in France versus in the UK. So I thought that was a bit disconcerting. And it looked a lot like a school choice problem. People have, if you like, slightly different priorities in a way, that's what they would be. Um, mm. But of course, people would also have very different preferences over the kind of country they actually want to move to if uh, they're already fleeing war. Um, and so we started thinking about what might happen in an international context. And the more we thought about this, the more we realized that this intuition can also be applied to subnational entities. So we thought about the case of Germany, which at the time, a year and a half ago, was experiencing a huge influx of refugees. And we were thinking about, well, where in Germany should they go? Should they go, which Bundesland should they end up in? And the more we thought about this, the more we realized, really, what really matters is what is the local area where the refugees end up? And then we discovered that there is actually a great deal of evidence that the match between the local area and the refugee um, dramatically affects their outcomes over the course of their life and, in fact, over the life of their kids. And the evidence for that comes from randomly assigning refugees in Sweden and Denmark in the early 90s, uh, which allows us to kind of precisely estimate what is the neighborhood effect on the particular refugee. Well, if we know that, then we should think there must be room for improvement because how, how do we know, how do the refugees know where they're going to end up? How do local areas decide about what kind of refugees come? Is it possible to centralize a market like this and use this knowledge in order to improve this market? So just following up on that point, um, there seems to be an important question of whether these uh, refugees, they have vertical preferences, as in there's uniformly like Stockholm is better than any other place in Sweden, or do some people prefer certain places to other places? Because if everyone had the same exact preferences, then someone would get it, and it's not clear a priori that we care about which person specifically. So that turns out to make no difference to the way that the logic of the matching system works. So consider, a, let's take the school choice case again. Suppose there's a really, really popular school that every kid in the city wants to go to. Well, in any outcome that's going to be fair, what's going to happen is you're going to send all... The school is just going to pick its highest priority kids, right? And it will get them because everybody wants to go to the school as their first choice. Now, not everybody will be able to get in. So what will really matter is what are the kids' second, third, and fourth, and fifth choices. So you might be completely right. And in the case of 
refugees, it's possible that they often you know, might want to move to large cities. Um, in the case of the UK, for example, we know a lot of the refugees have said that they want to move to London. But London is not a place that uh, even takes refugees because the housing is so expensive. So the question is, what is then the refugee's second choice? If you know they're not going to be able to move to London, what is their second and third and fourth choice? And that's where I think you will get a lot more differences across different families. You partially asked my follow-up question, which is, why is this even a matching problem at all? When we think about normal migration, we just think people go where they want to go and they take into account the relative benefits of different locations and the relative prices. Why is this a, a matching problem, the putting immigrants, uh, the refugees places? Yeah, so that's a very good point. The, the context in which we think where matching would be most useful is in the case of organized resettlement programs. So let me just give you a bit of background. There are, you know, a lot of people who migrate and they move around. Uh, and there's, you know, hundreds of millions of people who move around the world. These are not the people we are concerned about. We're concerned about refugees and, in fact, a very particular group of refugees, which are refugees who are eligible for resettlement, which basically says you're already a refugee. But even if the war ends in your country, you would not be able to go back there safely, perhaps because you're being persecuted on the grounds of your political beliefs or your sexuality, or whatever it might be. And that's about a million people in a given year are deemed to have been in such a dreadful situation that the only way in which we can possibly let them have a life which will be fulfilling is by taking them to a third country. And typically this would be the US, the UK, Australia, Norway, and so on. Out of those one million people that need resettlement, only about a hundred or so thousand actually get it. So the demand for resettlement vastly exceeds the supply of those places. Now, these resettlement programs are already very well organized. They've been going on for, you know, since the end of the Second World War, and they sometimes they get scaled up depending on what conflicts there are. But when the refugees are resettled to a country, they're usually put to a particular community that really helps them get going. These are not, you know, typically uh, young economic migrants that they can sort of traverse an entire continent and then find their job and, uh, and do it. These are often large families. They're very mobile. They do not come with a lot of assets. Um, they a lot of, often come with a lot of human assets, actually, but not a lot of, you know, physical and financial assets. Um, but, uh, and they find it very hard to move. And what the community typically does is that it helps them with housing. And the cost of moving, because the housing is uh, provided free or at a you know, very low rate for them, is actually very high. Because then they lose that ability outside of their community to have that housing. So in the UK, for example, you would go to the end of the housing queue. Um, whereas if you resettled at a particular uh, local area, you get you go right to the top, you get your housing when, when you move. So actually moving is very costly. Uh, and that's why getting the match right initially actually makes a big difference. So in the case of economic migrants, we're not too concerned because we know that they will gravitate toward where there are jobs. But in case of resettlement, because people stick and because it affects their outcomes so much, getting that match right at the very start is what matters. So one difference that you point out between refugee, then the refugee matching problem and, for example, the school matching problem is that when refugees enter a location, they don't just need a house. They also need medical services. They presumably might need a couple of uh, 
places at schools for their children? How does this change uh, how you attack the matching problem? So, you know, refugees come in families, right? Uh, we, we do everything we can to not separate families, and the families can be very large. So in the UK, for example, the modal side, uh, size of a resettled family is six. So when we think about simple matching problems where we are assigning kids to schools, uh, there's one kid and there's one school seat. And that makes the maths a lot easier. It gets immediately much more complicated when you have to assign, for example, couples. In the case of when we assign doctors to hospitals in the residency match, we often have to take into account the fact that there are couples um, and they might have preferences together or, or individually. And that creates a lot of difficulties. And actually, we've had to work um, our way around that. In the case of refugees, it's even more complicated. Exactly as you said, people come in and they have very, um, they have very different, if you like, sizes and different demands for a lot of different services. And that actually creates a lot of mathematical difficulties for finding fair outcomes. Because what often ends up happening is a fair outcome was what we might think of as a reasonable definition of a fair outcome might be quite wasteful. So we might end up with a lot of um, space that would be unassigned. So if we really insist on ensuring that the local area priorities are satisfied and the outcome is fair, there might be a lot of services that are not being used up. And maybe that's not a good thing. Would it be fair to say that there's a trade-off between welfare maximization and maximizing the amount of refugees we can handle? Absolutely, yeah. So if you think about this as a problem, um, um, as, as a problem of trying to just simply maximize the number of refugees that we sell, that's interesting enough on its own. Forget preferences and priorities. What you're really thinking of is, is, is the following kind of problem. So here's a problem you can compare it to. Let's say you have a trunk of your car and you're trying to pack boxes into your car. Right? How many boxes can you fit in? So a refugee is a sort of multidimensional sort of object. It's like a box, right? It's a family. It's got many dimensions. It's got kids and it's got sick relatives and it's got people who um, might want to get a job. And the local area has dimensions too. It provides the, the, um, the school seats and it provides the jobs and so on. So these problems are known to be computationally difficult. And so what we sort of have to think of is of ways of trying to find solutions to problems like that. So we borrow a lot from you know, computer science and combinatorial optimization. People have thought about these problems in the case of helping FedEx. We use the same kind of maths to try and figure out how we can allocate the refugees to the local areas. So is the system that you propose is it also incentive compatible or strategy proof? So, you know, if you insist on strategy proofness in this sort of setting, if you really want to make sure that the refugees do not misreport their preferences, and we have to really figure out how they even report their preferences, but let's say they can, you lose a lot in it's you get you lose a lot in efficiency. So, this will typically really affect the number of families you would resettle. A lot of people would be left unassigned. When you say efficiency, you mean in terms of empty spaces, you it's it seems like you don't mean Pareto efficiency in this sense. Oh, there would also be Pareto, Pareto improvements. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you would not get Pareto efficiency. There will be a lot of wasted services. Mm -hmm. So imposing, really wanting a mechanism to be um, strategy proof is very costly um, in efficiency terms in general. And so here it manifests itself in a very drastic way because of this sort of bulkiness problem, these, um, um, this combinatorial nature of families. I guess one of the, one of the things that you might think, though, is that even if um, there isn't like a proof for 
the fact that it's optimal for refugees to report their preferences truthfully, they might do so anyway. How do you how do you think about that problem? Well, at the moment, the refugees don't really get asked at all about where they get resettled. So you might meet, you know, as, as I did recently, you might meet somebody who has been resettled from Iraq to Boston, and his job in Iraq was uh, driving trucks. And uh, what he really wants to do is to drive trucks, but it's very expensive to get a, a truck driving license, and it's very hard to get truck driving jobs in Massachusetts. Um, so if he, for example, lived in North Dakota, there's a lot of truck driving jobs there, and it's much easier to get a truck driving license. Um, we might have thought that if we had given them the information and, and given him some sort of ability to express preferences, he would have said, really, I would love to go to North Dakota. So we don't really even have a way of understanding how we can get refugees to, to reveal these things. At the moment, they don't get asked at all. They just get sent somewhere where there is space and where very well-meaning resettlement agency workers think they will do well. Um, and often, you know, we might expect that the resettlement workers know enough that they know what might be good for the family. But very often, um, they won't because families have a lot of private information that they, they don't really share with uh, resettlement agency. So this is actually a really interesting uh, aspect of this problem, which also relates to the digital focus of the initiative on the digital economy. How do you set up a system that allows refugees to express their preferences? And furthermore, is it possible that you want to combine information from the refugees with the information from the agencies? So. Um, this is a real difficulty. It's very easy to ask parents, hey, what's the best school for your kids? Because they live in the local area and they just can go around, they can ask other people what's the best school, they can find the best school's guide, and there is just loads of information that allows them to actually express their preferences. What about refugees? You know, in the UK we have 353 local authorities. These are sort of the administrative units that, you know, decide on education and, and, and social services. How on earth can anybody rank 353 uh, local areas having never lived in England? I mean, if you ask somebody who is from England, they will probably not heard of most of these places. So how do we do this? So the way we think is the best way to do it is to understand what features of local areas are important for refugees. So think about how you might decide which area of the city you want to live in. What matters really is what is the area like does it have a lot of crime is it well connected is it close to university is it green does it have good schools does it have a hospital if you're very sick does it have jobs in the area that you want to be employed in this is the same thing for refugees we think so you um you can create profiles of areas which will collect information that will be relevant to how well they they think they can do and then what we can really get them to do is to tell us what's important which feature of the area is really important for them. So is it that they really, really want to be in an area that's extremely safe and very green, but can be potentially quite rural rather than urban? Or is it that they're so keen on being in a city that they're prepared to maybe have a little crime and, you know, a bit more pollution? So if we can get these preferences over the features of the local area, we can then construct what would have been their preferences had they known every single one of the UK's 353 local areas. It's even harder in the US because there's probably 353 local areas in Massachusetts and then you've got to scale this to the whole country. So the question is how can we uh, present this information in a way that is intuitive and, and, and simple and, and figure out what the preferences would have been. So a lot of this is uh, digital work and we're 
building a information platform to try and deploy and test uh, in the field to get those preferences. So what, what has that process been like? Uh, tricky, uh, you know. A lot of it is uh, we we need to make sure that it's um, this information is easily presented. So you don't always want to present it in terms of words. You want to maybe show people pictures, and also it matters the way that people understand something like crime is going to really vary from some refugees to others from different countries. Uh, people have very different perception of what you know something like crime is, or what does it mean to have little pollution. And so we have to be quite sensitive to these issues as well. So this is this is a kind of a process of learning. And at the moment, we're gathering a lot of local area information, both in the UK and the US, to at least make sure we have a comprehensive database that will allow us to construct these preferences. Um, and in, in that process, you know, even if we never use them in the actual matching, we will learn a lot about actually what refugees want and what is it they're looking for in the places where they're going to be resettled. You've talked about attributes of these settlement localities, both as things like hard caps, like number of beds, and in terms of things that refugees might have preferences over. Mm -hmm. um, to what extent do you decide what you want to think of as something that is an input into welfare versus some sort of hard constraint you have to fit? Is that something you're talking to governments about, what they feel about it? That's a great question. So we... Um we think about the hard constraints are the ones that being ones that need to meet certain needs. So if you think about a local area, there are really sort of three types of constraints in a way. The first constraint is a true physical constraint. There might not be a hospital that can cater for a particular kind of illness that the family might have. So you really don't want to send a family to that area. It might be that kind of, you know, the school might be too small to be able to accommodate a kid with disabilities, something like this. Uh, there might not be a house that is big enough for the family, um, or at least it might be. It might take too long to find a house that's big enough for the family. So these are hard constraints. The other type of constraints are sort of soft constraints, and they can manifest themselves in sort of pretty unpredictable way depending on the local area. They might say, you know, we are not very good at accommodating single parent families. It's not exactly always clear why that might be the case. Um, they might say we um, are not able to provide for families that speak a particular language because there are not any people in this local area that speak this language. Um, now again, you might think these are slightly softer constraints. These are a bit easier to relax. Nevertheless, we also take them seriously. So we take, we think that these are, these are the kinds of things that are important to respect. Some look more like physical constraints and the other ones look like willingness, if you like, constraints almost. Um, but nevertheless, we take them in. So we have information on refugees that would allow us to determine whether this constraint is going to be violated or not. Now, the last type is really the priority. So like what sort of area, uh, what, what sort of refugees does a local area really, you know, would prefer to resettle? Is it that they really are keen on having doctors because they're a rural area that finds it difficult to attract doctors? Or is it that they would like to have teachers? Or maybe they want to have orphan kids because there's a lot of families in that local area that want to adopt orphan children. So these, these, um, um, these three things will interact um, together um, and we try to take them as seriously as we can because local areas deserve and should have the sort of some degree of control. And if they can see that their constraints and their, um, their priorities are being met, they might be more likely in the future to actually relax them a little bit. Um, so that's why we take them seriously. Uh, I, I guess one uh, useful piece of context would be how is this currently done? So uh, let's say you're a government and you've agreed to take in 
some amount of refugees, how do you split it up uh, amongst all your localities? Do localities get to veto every single profile, like some sort of job applicant system? Or is it like, here you go, here's your five refugees, town X or whatever? So it works in different countries in different ways. And in, in the US, there are nine resettlement agencies that handle a load of the resettlement that the State Department takes on. And they first allocate the refugees among themselves through a sort of nice, fair system. And then they work with local areas directly and they collect profiles of the local areas that they work with. They work with the communities. They make sure that they're happy with the refugees that they get and they talk to them all the time. And, you know, typically they agree on the kind of profile of refugees that would fit in the local area, exactly as I described. And then they try to make sure that the refugees that arrive match that profile. There isn't really a job applicant system because there isn't a uh, case-by-case review, but you need to make sure that the constraints at least are met, right? So the next step would be, would it be, can we incorporate some more information from the local areas that would allow them to, um, to, to express further preferences than just the constraints? I see. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what I was wondering, because if it was a system where it was a case-by-case review, then they'd be potentially giving up a lot of control by opting into the system. That's exactly right. Uh, but, in, but in fact, you're giving them more control than what they previously had, that's exactly which should right. encourage them to enter the system. That's exactly right. So we, we hope that the communities that are taking refugees would be willing to take even more. Um, and there might be new communities that might also uh, want to do it. Now, mind you, the system is a little odd, right? Because the government decides on what its target is. It decides on the budget that it wants to spend. And this is true in every country. And then it has to sort of convince local areas to take people on. So there is this sort of public good aspect of it. Well, how do you incentivize local areas to take any refugees? Because what if every local area said, we don't want to take any refugees? The government would find it very hard, especially kind of in more federal systems, to really um, arm twist the local areas into it. And something like a matching system is a very soft way to be able to mediate, you know, concerns and control uh, from both sides and, and give local areas, I think, what they need is to make sure that this process is, you know, takes their needs into account and, and gives them some control. The last thing that I want to talk about is actually... What about the outcomes? So the hope is that this system is going to improve people's lives. So how does one go about tracking that and what are the outcomes that you'd be looking for? So you can think about it in two ways, right? One is we might just think, hey, we don't care about outcomes. What we care about is refugees' preferences. Refugees should determine what the outcomes that matter to them are. And so in a case of schools, sure, we track kids' outcomes. But in when we decide who, which kids should go to which school, what we really look at is the preferences of the parents. So we don't want to decide for them what's important for their kids. They should have decide this themselves and therefore choose the schools. That is not a view that most governments take at the moment. They are really concerned about the outcomes of refugees, partly, I think, because um, they are using you know, taxpayer money to, to help refugees when they move. And so they're accountable for the dollars that they spend. Or it might be charity money and so on. In any case, the outcomes really matter. And the sort of outcomes you might worry about is how quickly do refugees get into employment? How well do their kids do at school? How quickly do they learn English? And so on. And these things, unfortunately, we are not actually very good at tracking because it's very expensive. And resettlement agencies don't have a lot of money to be able to do this. So can we use better technology to be able to trace the outcomes of refugees? Because even if we didn't have their preferences, we could still do better by being able to 
do combinatorial optimization and deciding on what's, an, what's a good outcome. We might say, you know, if a particular type of refugee family does really well in a particular kind of area, well, that's great. That should have a lot of weight in our combinatorial optimization problem. We should really make sure that this family goes in there. And this might be something like getting into employment within some kind of time frame, so maybe within a year or so. Again, if you impose something like this, you're sort of deciding that this is good for the refugees. Well, it might not be, right? Because this employment might not be very good. It might be poorly paid. Maybe it would be better if the, um, the adults had delayed and gone into further training to then get a better job. So these things always have these difficult trade-offs. But in the, you know, you work with institutions and you work in the real world where these things are, uh, these things are the way they are often and you try to do the best under these kind of difficult constraints. And so we think that at least by measuring how well refugees do, we'll be able to shine a light on the actual match really matters. Because if you know that people do really, really differently, you should think about whether they, uh, where they go first. All right. So this has been really fascinating. Uh, if uh, the listeners want to learn more or to help out, where would they go? We've got a website set up. It's www.refugees-say.com. And that's got a bunch of information. It's got our contact details. You can also follow us on Twitter, which is the handle is at Refugees Say. And you can also just Google my name. And there is a bunch of papers and things on my website, which are more academic-y. And, you know, we are looking for anybody with skills, especially if you're a techie and you are interested in, you know, digital markets, uh, reach out because we, you know, would love some people with some really good software and programming skills to, to build some of these tools. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Alex. Thanks, guys.